0: At 4ZZZ, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast.
1: We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging of the Turbal and Jaguar people. We acknowledge that their sovereignty over this land was never ceded.
2: And we stand in solidarity with them.
3: And welcome to Workers Power here on Four Triple Z. My name's Bill. I use he/him pronouns. I'm
4: Jackson. I use they/them. I'm
3: Cal. He/him. Uh, yeah, welcome to to the um, Workers Power ANZAC Day edition. So we've got um, we, we we've got a, a guest lined up. Jeff's going to come on and chat, chat about. Um, we we're going to delve into the real meaning of less we forget. Hmm i think um you know with 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 the in brackets um a, a
4: bayonet is a weapon with a worker at both ends yeah anzac day is a big day for nationalism and um pro-military sentiment when uh the history of it and anyone who knows the history of it knows that it should be quite the opposite that if anything, this should be a day of shame for our government and our military for the way they've treated um, our, our our parents and grandparents who have served in the military and have been sent off to war to die for no reason. All right. So as it's Anzac Day,
3: we're um, joined by Jeff Ricketts, a, a, a local Labour historian. That's me, yeah. <laughs> um, so, th- look, first off, thanks for coming up on your on your, on your day off. You know, um, we don't get many days off us workers, but uh, um, yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on in. And uh, the reason that, that I first invited you on was uh, let l- let's talk about what "less we forget" really really means and what it what it should mean. So, you know, and for for many people, Anzac Day it's, it's an important occasion. You know especially if they have you know family members who, who were killed in service but it is also an occasion for a massive outbreak of khaki nationalism Ugh. how should we approach this
0: question of anzac day it's a very good question and um, i think one can understand certainly why families um, want and need to mourn and remember uh, people who have been lost in war, particularly um, young family members. Um, so, in taking a, a critical position on Anzac Day, the criticism is not directed at the families who lost people, it is directed at those who were responsible for putting those people in harm's way in the first place and those who continue to create political capital from those deaths and there's a lot of that going on um so i think we need to cut through the militaristic nationalist narrative and look with a critical eye at this country's war history
3: we we sure do and and uh, but but it would be remiss of us to, to not also, um, uh, you know, mark th- you know the 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 First Nations. Um, uh, uh, well, con- contribution is not the right word, but um, you know how how does the violent colonisation of Australia fit into this narrative? You know that was that was war too, wasn't you know really?
0: Absolutely, um, and I think the starting point for any discussion of this topic must start with the refusal of the establishment in this country to acknowledge the original war against Aboriginal people as the British forces invaded and spread across the country. Um, This was an undeclared war and it has never really ended. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are still dying at the hands of state authorities as we know and police terrorism of communities continues. But as a defining aspect of the frontier history, we can say that armed warfare was waged from 1788 to the early decades of the 20th century. Uh, Some of this warfare was waged by the white pastoralists and other settlers and some of it was waged by the state forces such as the European led native police. Um, so this is, this is an absolutely crucial aspect of looking at the history of Australia at war. And it's interesting and important to acknowledge um, the, the, the toll, the, the cost of that on traditional peoples in this country. Robert Orsted Jensen, who is um, an historian who's done a lot of work um, researching the death toll from the frontier <coughs> wars, Suggests that in Queensland alone more than 30,000 Aboriginal people were killed in conflict during the 19th century, um, and at a national level, the figure was massively higher, of course. Um, I'll, I'll quote Henry Reynolds. Most people know of Reynolds, he's a very prominent Australian historian. He's a very cautious historian, and his estimates. Of death tolls on the frontier are usually at the lower end of the range. But here's what Henry Reynolds has to say. Aborigines were killed by settlers every year somewhere in Australia from 1788 to the early years of the 20th century. They died in disproportionate numbers and the balance of terror tipped decisively in favour of the Europeans as the century progressed. The research of the last decade has led more engaged scholars to conclude that the controversial 1981 estimate of 20,000 Aboriginal deaths needs to be revised steeply upwards to 30,000 and beyond, perhaps well beyond. Um, And when we look around the country today, there are... Thousands of monuments to other wars, to people who have uh, fallen in other wars, but there are very, very few monuments to those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who fell in the original war. And the monuments that do exist are there because of decades of agitation and campaigning by Aboriginal people. So, of all the wars, of all the Australian wars, this is the only one the Australian state clearly wants us to forget. So our first response to Anzac Day must always be, lest we forget the tens of thousands of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who died in Australia's first and longest war.
4: It is often obscured how bloody and violent the colonisation of Australia was. It was as bloody and violent as any other war Really, um, yeah, definitely comparable to other wars at the time, like, um, well, especially other colonizations, such as the colonizations of the Americas and um, any of the various islands that have been, like Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, um, Hong Kong, um, all, all these things were had huge death tolls, and um, to and None of, and and, and the, Australia is definitely not nearly as acknowledged as any of them.
0: Ab- ab- absolutely not. And um, what's important to acknowledge in looking at that aspect of war history in Australia is the extent to of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander resistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last mm, 10 or so years, a lot of research is being done on the extent and the effectiveness of aboriginal resistance so ray kirkoff is a uh, southeast queensland based historian and um, his work in terms of the quandamooka people over on um, minjerabar suggests that over there there was at least one decisive battle in which the the local people uh defeated the the british forces and that basically turned the this turned the tide and put the local people in a much stronger position to to come to terms with the the white invaders. So yeah, th- this was war, and it was waged all all over the that place. Was that, now, Cal. That was your people, yeah.
1: Yeah, that that's so um, my people. Um, even Leanne Enoch, the housing minister, all our family. That that was all our people. Um, and uh, what's, the, what's the
3: tell, tell us the, what's the family history how, how, you tell us how, how well, your
1: it, story. it's actually pretty sad I, I've actually had um, some chats with some people in the the, um, the labor history movement um, there's a fellow out on Strati named Howard Gill and shout out to Howard who's had these chats with myself and our family so basically um, the geography with Australia the the mainland continent is um, fortunate for my people kwamoca people we had the geography of the islands unfortunately most uh, mobs didn't have that and um, if you had past- pastoralists and um, British soldiers or even native police they recruited you um, you would pretty much be bound by being pushed into a corner and hence, well, there's massacres and there's so many... There's actually a lot of creeks named after skulls because of where massacres happened. Uh, people don't really realise this. But on Stradbroke Island, uh, my people are the New Knuckle people. Morton Island, there's the Noogie people. Uh, dolphin tribe, Carpet Snake being Noogie. Um the Morton Island tribe uh, basically were confronted in the 1820s and 30s by um, soldiers and settlers. There was a massacre on the south end of Moreton Bay Island where 15, 20 of our family members were, were killed, um, including children. And um, basically the Noogie people fled to hang out uh, basically as refugees with the Noonuckle people who they used to trade with and um the new Knuckle people actually did put up a resistance around what is today known as Myora, like where the myra springs are and uh there's actually a relative of all of ours named dale rusco who's done a bit of history with historians and given accounts and um they actually did hold off um some of the soldiers who um tried settling there and um unfortunately what was our downfall after that was um basically even though we won a bit of a stalemate our people on my father's side there was um the, it was a situation where alcohol was traded after after the battles ceased um, a lot of Aboriginal people became dependent on alcohol and drugs and the dietary of European settlers. And you also had uh, pandemics and disease where a lot of our people weren't as accustomed to the immunity of diseases as other people would have been from Uh, europe
4: and that's similar to how the british used opium to colonize china wouldn't
1: it yeah Yeah. definitely um a lot of our people i've mentioned before in previous programs the benevolent asylum in stradbroke island there was a lot of slave labor used for for that asylum um and there was even places out there pretty much like detention centres for immigrants at one point. They have a lot of unmarked greys from Dunwich, where I'm from. I, I think it's really particularly interesting you've mentioned Frontier Wars. I don't think it gets mentioned enough. Um, and I, I thank Bill for even raising it today because I don't think it gets as much limelight as it should. I mean, there are discussions about it, especially with treaty and voice being talked more and more. But what i what i also think is important is people don't always necessarily understand the complexity of the politics of native title um i mean you've even had keating back in the day with um the the Marbo native title speeches and redfern where he said oh we brought the alcohol and i mean it's it, it, it rud tried with the apology but i mean this there, doesn't matter what politics you look at there's still a lot of ways to go and um it is pretty hard to hear as an Indigenous person and First Nations person. Uh, wh- one of the things I also like to mention is um, one of some of our relatives even fought in World War One. There are First Nations people uh, like Richard Martin, who is very distant, um, well, actually very closely related, great-uncle <laughs> of mine, because I'm a Martin through my grandmother's side. Um, yeah, like you could serve... The military you could go to france you could fight in somme or marcel but but you couldn't vote you didn't have the right to vote because you were mm. classed as fauna and flora until like the 60s so you know how does that make sense um yeah i, I mean we we also do need to acknowledge that, uh, that you know a lot of av- everyday working people uh, fought in the wars too i mean one of my great grandfathers on my european side fought in Gallipoli and came back as one of Queensland's first Bolshevik communists and didn't get a proper burial in the 50s till my family fought for it. His name was Neil Larson from Mariborough, but yeah, we, we do need to have these discussions about the significance of um, Anzac Day or even Remembrance Day, so Well, thank you for that. Thanks for for, for sharing your, 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 your history, because especially
3: as you said, on days like today um, you know we, we should be re- remember all of those that were, that were lost and um and then and then that, that leads us to you know what what does the official silence about the australian frontier wars tell us about the broader war uh, history of australia
0: yeah i think the silence on this war gives us a clue about the true nature of australia's other wars uh, the official narrative about the other wars tells us ad infinitum again and again and again that they were about defending freedom that the deaths and the injuries and the immense suffering were a sacrifice to maintain freedom but if the one unambiguous case where that claim is true the Aboriginal people's defense of their country is deliberately excluded from this narrative we must question how true it is for any of the other military conflicts in which Australia's forces were involved um, and this one crucial omission, I think, exposes a much broader lie about Australia's war history.
3: Yeah, it, it, it is. It, um, it, it all starts at the
4: beginning, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah wh- what do you mean about the, by the broader lie about Australia's war history?
0: Well, it's this notion, this claim that men and women died for freedom, that they sacrificed their lives for freedom these were not struggles for freedom as the australian capitalist state emerged and asserted its autonomy in the second half of the 19th century australian armed forces were repeatedly used overseas to advance australia's and its allies imperialist interests Um, so today's anzac day so let's take a, a look at the anzac's invasion of turkey on the 25th of april 1915. Now, the commonly promoted view is that the British wanted to knock the Ottoman Empire out of the war as a strategy for isolating Germany. But more honest historians acknowledge that the invasion was more than a war, uh, more than that, sorry, uh, and not even primarily that. It was an attempt to win territory from the Ottomans, which would be offered to the Russian Tsar as a bribe to keep Russia in the war. We now know there was an agreement, a secret agreement uh, called the Straits and Persia agreement of March 1915, so a month before the invasion of Gallipoli occurred, in which Britain and France promised to give Russia the spoils of the Gallipoli campaign in return for Russian agreement to annexations elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire for France and Britain. So in other words, the Gallipoli invasion which cost the lives of 87,000 Turkish soldiers and over 44,000 Allied soldiers, was not a strategic maneuver for winning a war for freedom. It was about a permanent post-war carve-up of the Middle East between the great powers. Um, And even the the anti-fascist nature of the war against Germany, Italy and Japan in World War II barely hid an imperialist agenda by the American, British and Australian states. The so-called defense of freedom did not extend to the rights of colonized people to gain political and economic independence. For example, the big powers supported the Dutch efforts to reclaim Indonesia after the war. The French did reclaim Indochina after the war. Australia gained the northern half of Papua New Guinea. That was its uh, spoils of war. And even Japan became an American colony until 1952 and did not regain its sovereignty until it was fully integrated into the American orbit as an extension of American imperialist power in East Asia. So freedom always, (coughs) always took a back seat to geopolitical power. Um, And it was mentioned a little bit earlier about um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander soldiers who fought in those world wars. Uh, And it's worth remembering that... Uh, Australian First Nations soldiers and African American soldiers fought in those wars believing that they would return to a better world, return to a better life. But what they in fact found when they came back to Australia and America after the war was that they came back to the same structural and brutal racism that they'd left. Um, the african-american soldiers went back to a situation where jim crow racism was endemic nothing changed Uh, so these were not wars for freedom
4: yeah despite um like you know i I, i'm all aware of how war is just a tool of the capitalists and um the the government has never really done anything um out of out of the goodness of their hearts um but hearing that gallipoli like the battle of gallipoli that is so ingrained into like our the the culture of this country, um, like everyone knows about it because everyone learns about it in school and they're always hearing about it every Anzac Day. Um, and they're hearing that that like, wasn't even to win the war, like not, not even just like sending people to die for no reason in this pointless war, but it wasn't even like that relevant to the war at all. It was just another project of colonialism. Um, that's quite confronting to hear.
1: Yeah. church Church, sorry to interrupt but churchill was the like the the british imperial Mm, naval minister at the time and like he he saw um the australian troops as expenditure really at the end of the day i mean i know a lot of people like some of the things churchill did in the second world war but he was very imperialistic and Mm. uh that's what really affected a lot of um aussie troops particularly in gallipoli because the brits were having tea on the beach and all the working hard soldiers were off dying in the fields with the kiwis i mean yeah that doesn't really seem fair does it yeah
0: well they were uh, they were regarded as an expendable resource and when we when we finally find out that the 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 gold was territory and um resources to be shared between various empires the russian the british and the french uh this wasn't what these these people went and signed up and died for
4: yeah um so what other examples are there of australian forces fighting imperialist wars well, Australia's military has always been an imperialist force. Um, we, we saw
0: this as recently as the intervention into East Timor. It, it went in there ostensibly to liberate the Timorese from Indonesian oppression. Um, but we know now the real agenda was about Australian regional security and access to Timor's o- oil and gas reserves. Um, and Australia's history as an imperialist and pro-colonialist power goes back a long way. So, he, here's a question for you. Can you tell me what was the first overseas war in which an Australian military force was deployed? I think it was the Boer War,
4: wasn't it? It could have been the Boer War. I'm pretty sure. <laughs>
0: Close, but not far enough
4: back. Hmm. Would have been. It would have been somewhere like, uh, like the in the Indonesian Papua New Guinea, like Southeast Asia area, maybe. No,
0: no? it was actually the so-called new zealand
4: war from oh, 1845
0: to 1872 oh, like the
4: colonization of new zealand
0: that's right the Christ. war the wars to defeat the Māori. um during the first taranaki war in 1860-61 the government of victoria sent their naval vessel to support the british invaders against the Māori. Uh, and in the second taranaki war in april 1863 and in the invasion of waikato in july 1863 some 2,500 Australians signed up to fight for the colonisers. So this is uh, 1860s Australia's um, sending uh, military resources off to support the colonisation of another people, um, and and it goes on. Um, New South Wales military forces were used to help crush an indige- indigenous rebellion against British rule in Sudan in 1885. Um, earlier, it was mentioned the um, of the Chinese, the Boxer Rebellion. Mm. Australian military forces backed the British in their military campaign in 1900, uh, 1901, to put down a rebellion of Chinese who were resisting British efforts to force them to trade their goods for opium. Uh, this was became known as the Boxer Rebellion. So, Australian mm. Australian military forces were involved with the British. In putting that down and so it goes on um, Australian troops uh, helped to put down the uh, Irish Easter uprising of 1916 when workers in Dublin rose up against British rule oh right uh, there yeah. were Australian troops involved in putting that down um, Australian troops formed part of the invading force sent into Russia to crush the workers revolution in fact two Australians were awarded the Victoria Cross for their actions in the counter-revolutionary war against the workers of Russia. Uh, And their medals are actually on display in the war memorial in Canberra. So, so much for fighting for freedom. Mm. And, of course, we all know about Australia's more recent role in invading Afghanistan and Iraq.
4: Yeah, it's um, definitely interesting to hear about how the Australian military has throughout its entire history just been a tool of um british and its own imperialism um like it, it's never it has never been about freedom or democracy or anything like that it has always been to just to put down people who are fighting for their own liberation and to impose the power of the capitalists over over these um uh colonized people yeah, yeah.
1: I, I think you've raised some uh, pretty good points um Today and uh, one of the things, having come from a family that's b- been pretty involved in the military forces um, on both sides, um, I-, I think it's it's really important. You've you've raised these uh, these points in this argument. Um, I-, I happen to agree with some of the points you've, you've mentioned. Um, not everyone would, but. I think, like, a lot of the nationalistic jingoism um, is a concern today, especially given the, the climate of the world. And, I mean, even right now I've been reading... Um, oh, there's there's a book about, you know, trying to avoid war between China and America that K. Rod wrote. Um, I mean, you could like or hate him, wh- whatever he did in government. But I think these are points we need to look at how to uphold peace. Um, because, like... If you, don't, if, if you don't look at respecting peace, uh, war totally changes things. One of my great-grandfathers um, had a bit of PTSD after serving in World War Two, and it does do phenomenal damage intergenerationally uh, to this day. And uh, I, I think it's really interesting, because something that doesn't get mentioned a lot anymore, because it's not in the consciousness of out me and Jackson and Genesis, our generation is conscription, and a lot of people would forget that conscription split the, the early labour movement, um, d- especially during World War One when Billy Hughes uh, pushed for it. I mean, um, Second World War, people sure were trying to defend Australia, but people forget the underlying tones of the racism back then. Japan mm. probably wouldn't have become imperialistic playing by... Our, uh, european old playbook um if it wasn't for um the racial equality clause being respected after the first world war like with billy hughes um you mentioned Papua new guinea uh you know those were the terms he agreed to and i mean there's also like all the way with lbj and vietnam and jim cairns um fought with all the vietnam vets and the the anti-war movement during the vietnam war a lot of people just wouldn't remember that i mean my grandfather he was a rifle person but um i mean my grandmother like was concerned that you know he would go to vietnam he got out because of a hernia but a lot of people were worried about that once he reached age (laughs) yeah well the point you're making about um the
0: current situation with the rising military tensions with China is, a, is, is an absolutely valid one. This stuff isn't just academic history. Um, mm. We need to understand why nation states go to war. Uh, we need to understand why they've done it in the past. Um, and we need to bring that kind of same critical gaze to the situation now um, because we, the, the war drums are beating again uh, and, we, and we need to understand what's driving that
4: yeah uh, something i've definitely noticed recently is the huge increase in like um military recruitment advertising all over the place like no matter where i look it's like uh see it on the road on the tv um on on facebook and stuff um yeah it's like v- pretty worrying to see
1: even one of the former world war Two generals who became president i mean even though he was republican um president eisenhower his last speech was about the dangers of the growing tensions of military industrial complex post 50s onwards in future generations and i think um that is a real warrior uh, i think he may have had some points
4: <laughs> yeah and um this is all especially bad when you consider uh some of the revelations about australia's military conduct recently like in recent years evidence has come to light of australian war crimes in afghanistan what do you say about that
0: um, well, I say it shouldn't surprise us because Australian soldiers have been committing war crimes and crimes against humanity for a long time. Mm. Um, uh, putting aside the, the frontier wars and just looking at Australian military forces overseas, um, as you say, we all know about the evidence of Australian soldiers murdering civilians and captured fighters in Afghanistan. Um, and there's a long history of this. Australia's probably, Australia's best known war criminal uh, was Harry Breaker Morant. Uh, He's a kind of mythological hero figure for some reason. Mm. And he ordered prisoners and a German missionary to be shot during the Boer War in 1901. Now, Morant was executed for his crime, but he's one of the few ever to be held accountable. Um, Less known um, is the massacre by Australian and New Zealand soldiers of Palestinian villages in December 1918. And that was a premeditated reprisal for a shooting death of a, a single New Zealand soldier. At least 40 and possibly more than 100 villages and nearby Bedouins were murdered in cold blood. Um, and that's on record now. In World War II, it is also on record that Australians killed, captured Japanese prisoners of war in, in New Guinea and so on, all the way down to Afghanistan uh, and Iraq, we know that Australian troops, alongside American troops, committed atrocities uh, in Vietnam during that period. So there's a, there's a there's a long history of, of this.
4: Um, yeah. When you said that that first one you mentioned about the guy who actually got held responsible, you said that was for killing Germans. Yeah. The, well, this is the Boer War, so it mm. was a, a a conflict between uh, um,
0: the. the the British, uh, it was over the territory in South Africa uh, so there were Australian troops. It was another example of Australian military forces going overseas to assist the British yeah. in, in, in a colonial land grab.
4: The, that does seem... Uh, the, the main difference I noticed between that one where he actually got held accountable and the other ones you mentioned was that the other ones were war crimes and massacres of people of colour, uh, of Palestinians and uh, Japanese people. Um, uh, when there when was white people being killed, yeah, got held accountable, but um yeah the, the, the often the case with uh war crimes and especially in iraq and afghanistan like the dehumanization of middle eastern people um is rife within the military
0: yeah i think there, and there's an argument that uh the execute um Marant's order to to execute the german missionary uh, was actually the the reason that he was convicted and executed mm-hmm. If it had, if it had been the other prisoners, it may not have ended for him that way. But mm. um, it, it was the, um, the the British. The British were most upset about the, a German, <laughs> a white German missionary being being murdered.
1: I, mm. I I think it's really important that you know things like the Geneva Convention and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights exist because of such horrible atrocities. I mean. Um, in the, in the 50s, 60s, onwards to 70s and 80s, there was fear of nuclear annihilation with, you know, Cold War. But, um, yeah, it, it is quite um, unimaginable to think the horrors that are quite capable of happening again, um, which could potentially be ten times worse than the Second World War. And, and I mean, uh, there's all sorts of different kinds of war, not just nuclear. There's germ warfare. There's also, like, chemical. There's all sorts of scary stuff out there like nerve gas but i I think irrespective of of what can happen in war people forget that there's reasons why these things exist i mean look at the ukraine war so much civilian casualties i mean people back in the day it was it was real frowned upon um in old-style military conflicts to, to target the civilian population but because since the Industrial Revolution that's become more of the collateral of warfare and I think uh, you just have to look at like the war in Ukraine to just imagine what what could happen in our own region or elsewhere I mean mm. it you know war should never happen mm. and I think those those uh, these pieces of paper that not all adhere to exist because for those very reasons we've discussed today
4: (laughs) um i believe there have also been instances of australian soldiers resisting the war machine is that right uh, yeah, that's uh, that's uh, in a sense
0: the flip side of the narrative. So insubordination and even rebellion um, has been something of an inconvenient truth for Australia's khaki nationalists over time as well. Um, I'll just give two examples. On the 14th of February 1916, thousands of soldiers from the Liverpool military training camp near Sydney took strike action over un- overcrowding and other grievances that have been building up over a long period within the camp and they marched and rioted through the streets of Liverpool before catching trains into Sydney and marching down George Street uh, and proceeded to riot again. The riot ended with a clash at Central Railway Station where one soldier, uh, a fellow by the name of Ernest William Keefe, was shot dead and six others were injured. Thirty-seven soldiers were arrested and seventeen were charged with righteous behaviour. Another strike of an even more serious nature, at least for the, um, the officers, occurred on the 21st of September 1918 when 115 Australian troops uh, in France refused to return to the front after months of brutal frontline service. And they were charged with desertion and they were court-martialed. and the privates got three years in the slammer and their sergeants were sentenced to five to 10 years uh, in, in prison. Um, But we do, I think, I would make this point, um, there is this long history of uh, insubordination uh, and unrest within within the military forces, but we do have to be uh, cautious about that because this history of resistance from below tends to be co-opted by the nationalists as a quirky history of Australian larrikinism mm. uh, a distinctively Aussie dislike for authority which actually feeds into this mythology I think we have to resist this co-option far from a nationalist Aussie trait this kind of resistance often had its roots in traditions of class resistance that soldiers brought with them from the pre-war civilian life as trade unionists, that was certainly the case in the First World War uh, and indeed the Second World War um in both the first and second world wars quite a few of the australian soldiers saw themselves as worker soldiers and their officers they saw as similar to the tin pot dictators that they were familiar with from their workplaces before the war Uh, so i think uh, we we have to understand that there there are class traditions at work in in some of these collective instances of of resistance um and we shouldn't be shouldn't allow those stories to be co-opted into this nationalist narrative about Larican larrikin of soldiers i think that's that's a danger
4: and and that does as well highlight the role that trade unions and all as well as just like the labor movement can play in um preventing wars uh, anti-war activism um and, and as well as like resistance during wars um in order to like if not totally stop it um, then to prevent some of the mitigate some of the damage that is being done
0: yeah I I think uh, you've had previous programs where um, people have come in and talked about the the anti-war movements Mm. in Australian history and um, the anti-conscription movement in the first in the in the First World War, and again in the Vietnam War. So, there is this very rich and powerful history of uh, anti-war movements in this country, and um, and and that also needs to be remembered as we enter another very vol- volatile uh, period in geopolitics in the world. That we, there are there are traditions of anti-war, anti-militarist. Um, Protest
4: that we can draw upon. Mm. Um, uh, Speaking of um, uh, Australian soldiers, like uh, or just soldiers in general, resisting wars. Um, One of my favourite stories is from the Vietnam War, and this wasn't. I'm not sure this was Australian soldiers. It probably would have been because there were a lot of Australian soldiers there. Uh, One of my favourite stories is of when the commanders uh, of a unit did something that the soldiers disagreed with, like, to a pretty serious extent, because there was a lot of very intense stuff going on in that war. Um, And and if the soldiers didn't like it, they would just um, chuck a grenade under the bed of that commander. Um, And this is the kind of thing that would actually happen fairly often during the Vietnam War, and that the uh, governments were very um, uh, intent on keeping quiet because there, there, was a. Uh, that, that's just one example. That's the one that goes. Oh wow, that is very, <laughs> just chuck, chucking a grenade under there. But there were other lo- lots of other small examples of people like the, the soldiers who had been conscripted to to that war, like uh, resisting it in many little ways um, to make just make life difficult, and it would have been um, uh, one one of the c- factors in the. Uh, in in the United States loss of that war um, not to <laughs> discount of course the uh, fighting the, the 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 abilities of the Vietnamese to fight against them which was obviously the main thing there um, so wrapping up how should we remember Australia's war history and those who fought and died well I think we should remember all of
0: these people um, but we should do so with clear eyes Um, Most of these Australians were ordinary decent people, Um, but as individuals, quite a few of them did horrendous things, including rape and murder. Um, Collectively, they were the instruments of Australian and British and American imperialist goals and policy. What they thought they were signing up for was in most cases a lie or only part of the broader picture. Uh, The wars they fought ultimately had nothing to do with, with freedom. And sometimes um, that truth broke through at the time and the soldiers themselves realised they were just pawns in, a, in big power territorial politics. So I want to, I want to quote um, from a, a written statement which was tendered by Private Edward Ryan, an Australian soldier and this statement was tendered by Ted Ryan at his court-martial on the 12th of September 1917. Now Ted had been through the meat grinder of the Western Front and he had come to realize the generals and the political class in Britain were not actually interested in peace, Mm. only conquest, and he decided to refuse to fight anymore and he was charged with desertion. Any statement to the court after accusing the British of adopting a policy of might is right, which he argued was opposed to the ideals of humanity and civilization, he wrote that, and I quote, I enlisted to fight for a peace without conquerors or conquered. That kind of peace, he argued, would minimise the risk of another war because peace under those conditions meant another war could not be justified, either as a war of revenge by the conquered or a war of glory and patriotic land grabbing by conquerors really powerful statement Mm, he genuinely thought he had signed up to fight a war to end all wars Mm. but his experiences um in battle and his acute observations of the so-called war diplomacy that he was reading about by the big powers led him to to conclude that this was a lie And I think Ted Ryan was spot on. Land grabbing and geopolitical advantage were and are the real basis of all of these wars and the real meaning of Anzac Day. Which I think actually makes the deaths of all these people all the more tragic. Uh, It's a tragedy that we can be sad about, but it's a tragedy that should also make us angry. So lest we forget the truth... So we can assure that these kinds of events, these uh, episodes of absolute carnage on both uh, soldiers and on civilian populations never happen again.
4: Absolutely. Uh, Anzac Day is a day of mourning. We mourn those who have been sent to their deaths by the imperialist war machine. Um, But this imperialist war machine that is sent... Our loved ones to die still exists and is still doing that, and um, we we should not be we should not be silent and let them um, continue. Um, yeah, right on!
3: Thank you so much, Jeff. That was really good. They're already talking about it um, uh, for a uh, uh, salty from. Uh, uh, the Rhinestone Calgula
4: that's on at one o'clock today is is saying what a fantastic interview, you know. So we also have Nat Osborne, Osborne texting and saying great show, really appreciating this critical history. Thank you very much, Nat.
3: Yeah. So um yeah the bit, yeah thank you very much for co- for coming on and um I I, I suppose the uh, the um the, the ode of of remembrance. Uh, it's something that we could put on here because after the, the discussion that we have, um, it, it, it really has its true meaning and, and it's not its... uh the, what, what was the term? Khaki, nationalistic nonsense. Um, so, yeah, they shall, they shall grow not old, as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning... We will remember them. We will remember them, lest we forget. So, see how it has after that discussion. See how it has a, a much more profound meaning. Mm. Um, I, I, I really, re- really do, and I, I thank you for for coming on and, and uh, you know the, w- discussing the real meaning of "lest we forget." And welcome back to Workers Power here on Four Triple Z. My name's Bill. I use the he/him pronouns. I'm Cal. He/him. I'm Jackson. There, then. All right. So uh, out with one guest, in, in with another. We're we're, <laughs> we're 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 joined today by you're uh, uh, you're a, a semi regular here
5: on Workers Power. I have been here before.
3: Yeah, uh, we've got Phil Monsoor joining us. Thank you for coming on today, I Phil. Do well so so the the, the main reason that, that um, you're coming on is is you got a show coming up but uh, it's it's uh, in and around um, you know palestine uh, songs and stories but you, you when when we we've been talking about anzac day and you mentioned that uh, um anzacs have got a bit of history when it comes to palestine
5: yep yeah, so um uh, yeah i thought it was an interesting segue from what you've been talking about so far just um in 2000 uh yeah 2018 was the 100th anniversary of a massacre that occurred in a village in palestine called surafend um, and it was a an incident in which um, the anzacs um uh, emptied the village of the women and then massacred the men and they say about 40 to 100 people were killed, and um, the Australian government actually paid some sorts of restitutions, and the New Zealand government paid some sorts of restitution to those people after that massacre, um, you know, accepting their complicity in what occurred. So, I thought that was an interesting link to what you were talking about, as we talk about Palestine, which is now uh, this year marks the 75th um, anniversary of the Nakba or the catastrophe, uh, in when when Palestine was lost, and. Um, three-quarters of the population were exiled, and um, I thought it was important that this May Day coming up, well, I try to do a solidarity event every May Day, this May Day, um, perhaps to focus on those that, that, that story.
3: Fantastic. And, and so the, the actual event, um, or the gig, is um, Saturday 6th of May. Yeah. Um, it's in the ETU building. Um, they can uh, there, there, There's um, tickets on your on your Facebook page. Is yep. the links um, through through uh, through to you and uh, get out there and and so um, all proceeds to uh, assist the Palestinian people.
5: Yep. So there's a, an agency, an Australian agency called Union Aid Abroad, a feeder um, that uh, interestingly was sort of established by an Australian nurse in. Um, who was working in the Palestinian camps in Lebanon and she came back to Australia and was able to convince the ACTU to set up a, a development sort of a assistance fund and they started funding various projects largely in the Middle East initially but now they also have projects all through um, Southeast Asia and um, you know thousands of workers in this country support that through weekly donations and fundraising and um I think it's a really important organization because it, um, it links workers um, with active solidarity and workers in other places. so, so we'll be fundraising for that. I've, I've been doing that for uh, quite a while now uh, and I've seen I've, I was actually lucky enough to travel and see some of the projects that Union um, A and Union Aid, for, uh, Union Aid broader feeder have supported in, in the occupied territories and see some of the work they do and some of the meet some of the people that they work with.
4: That, that is interesting. What, are you able to talk about like what kind of projects like, w- people would be funding if they uh, supported this fundraiser?
5: Yep, so um, uh, in for, for the exiled Palestinians, which now number somewhere between around 5 million, uh, 5 to 6 million people, uh, they largely, they're, they're largely populated in the areas outside of Palestine, historic Palestine itself, so in Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, um, Egypt, and those surrounding states. And so, for example, AFIDA has a, a number of projects in Lebanon in some of the big Palestinian camps there. And the one that I visited was Buruj el barajni which is in the centre of, it's in Beirut. And they have, you know, some sort of really powerful projects where they work with women. Um, they do a lot of food security work. They assist with education. They have childcare centres for working women. and. Um, Projects like that that are really fundamental to people's survival in those situations where life is very precarious. Um, I don't know if you've seen these. We call them camps. Um, They started as camps. They're now sort of, sort of, largely sort of slum suburbs. Mm. Uh, No infrastructure. All the electricity is run by the people themselves. So you're walking, literally about. You know, people from the ETU would get a shock (laughs) if they saw (laughs) saw the wiring and and the way. you know people access those sort of resources um, and then uh, other projects in Occupied Palestine itself, in the Gaza Strip they do they support a number of hospitals there, some very important hospitals that um, help with the rehabilitation of people who've been injured and, uh, in the violence that occurs, also food security projects um, for assisting people with sort of small farming projects and farming projects which, which is very difficult um, in the circumstances in they're in because, as um, people would hopefully know, uh, the Gaza Strip's been under siege now for close to 15 years and um, their infrastructure, their farming infrastructure, is continually decimated um, by by the violence. So, yeah, that, those sorts of things.
4: are mm. um, I able to talk about, like, what is happening currently, like, in... Palestine, or, or, or what, what is happening currently with the colonisation of Palestine by Israel or, like, with the camps in other countries? Um, so the situation for people in the camps hasn't
5: really, um, you know, isn't... Uh, is uh, an ongoing... Oh, one of the interesting things I learnt was um, some of the... when the United Nations set up these camps in the period after 1948... Um, the leases that they took out were actually 90 years and I guess, you know, the people who were there were thinking they'd be back in their, they'd be back home within months, years. It's now turned into many decades and, mm. uh, so there's, there's, there's uncertainty about, um, you know, the, the ongoing support and the, the on, their ongoing position, um, and they you know, in places like Lebanon, that are in a severe economic crisis, probably one of the worst in the world. Um, if you're at the, the absolute bottom of that, um, that that society, um, as a re- as a refugee, uh, without any uh, without sta- you know any papers or um, rights to work, it's very precarious. In an occupied Palestine itself, you know, we're in a um, you know people have seen the news about. Um, some of the significant events that are occurring there, and some of the politics that is, is emerging um, in the in the, in the apartheid state of Israel, and um, it's it's you know it's what we've been talking about here—the ongoing colonisation of people's land—and um, you know, we're building towards uh, you know there's the occupied territories that are officially you know are legally recognised as occupied, but there are a lot of people in the State of Israel that want to turn that into part of what they call Greater Israel. Mm. And, you know, people as always resist this and, um, you know, they resist by continuing to survive and they resist by protests and resistance and, um, I guess, events like this are about just offering our solidarity to people and sort of saying, you know, I, I imagine it's easy for them to feel like they've they're forgotten, uh, if not forgotten, probably even a bit worse than that because they're often betrayed by, you know, we we have things called international law that don't seem to apply to their situation, and we have, you know, conventions of war that don't seem to apply to their situation. So it's probably even worse than feeling like you're forgotten. So that's like that's why I like coming together with people in my city and having events like this and sharing these stories and experiences and some of the ways I've responded in in songs to, um, you, know, you know, bring us together and to, and to talk about these things and think about these things, but also send our message of solidarity in any way we can with the little bit of money that we can raise and, um, you know, the awareness that we create by doing these sorts of events, so, yeah.
3: Right. Well, y- you mentioned songs. Now we we note that you you,
5: you brought in your fascist uh, killing machine. I-, I always bring it in. <laughs> Never too sure how it sounds on the radio. It
3: it, ca- it comes up all right. So, <laughs> uh, 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 you you want to you want to uh, do a an exclusive live performance for us?
5: <laughs> Let's give it a shot. the engineer there Bill yeah. <laughs> so this is actually one I, I talked about that trip where I was um, part of a union aid abroad a feeder delegation where I, I saw some of the work that uh, we're fundraising for and uh, I came back uh, with a song that sort of weaves together some of those experiences um, and I wanted to do something that was uh you know, there's lots of songs about I left my heart in San Francisco and various places. I think there's even one I left my heart in West End, but I thought I'd come back with a song called I left my heart in Palestine.
2: at the checkpoint you were, coming home from work our wives met. We laughed about how the soldiers talked. Smile of quiet dignity in that cage of shame Determination in your eyes I might never see again and I Left my heart in Palestine We were people of no consequence quietly crying on the bus Staring into the distance as we drove back through the dust A spirit gently bending But it's in this hope we trust Nothing on our skin makes them better than us and I Left my heart In Palestine Dark hair falling gently in the soft light of the dusk, as a setting sun reflected off the dawn of the rock, crackling like a gunshot, a distant call to prayer. Someone praising God and saying we're still here and I left my heart in Palestine. at the words that are etched upon that wall, standing in its shadow, dreaming of its fall. Our hopes met like thunder in our arms entwined cradling the stories of those we leave behind. And I left my heart and I left my heart in Palestine in Palestine in Palestine
3: No, thank you. Thank you for that. That So I was going to ask you you, you now you do a, a, a few gigs like this and yeah and um, a, a, as an artist and as a musician do you do you, do you like that inti- intimacy that you get with the kind of with this kind of show and 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 to, and then being dragging the uh, well dragging uh, for the one of a word the, the 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 audience along with the stories as well is uh is that something that you re- really enjoy and and can you talk to, to to how that makes
5: you feel yeah it's it's it's, it's uh, sort of it gives a real sense of doing uh, for me, uh, making something very positive out of music. I've been doing a few shows in pubs again recently and that's sort of been fun to be sort of loud and a bit energetic and a uh, uh, but these, these sorts of moments are where it makes a real sense of you know, who you are as an artist and what you're trying to say and I've actually uh, i I work with a series of videos that accompany a lot of the the songs that I do around this so um, and interweave that sort of imagery with those sorts of experiences and the and the words and the stories and the music and um, trying to try to create a that, that that's why I always you know it's 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 always really cool when you get um, people who come along and just sort of uh, sort of Open this whole new story opens up to them just mm. by what you do with with a few songs and things that they they'd never really s- sense and I think with music it's it's an interesting um, it's an interesting way of communicating with people because these are people that you know they they'll never go to a rally, they'll never go to a meeting or those sorts of events, but they might come along to something like this and experience a, a story and a song that really changes the way um they perceive their you know uh, they, how they perceive what was going on and what you're talking about and so you know i remember we put out this cd called ghosts of deer you and um it was uh, we released it, it must be about 2012 now i think we got this one one of the, one of these tracks into the triple z hot hot 100 back in the day and I remember people coming in. You know, you know, they'd never heard of this, and this is this is a very famous and historic massacre that um, a lot of people um, who fled um, during the, um, the, the the conquest of Palestine, who fled, referenced what occurred in this village, as you know, fear for their lives that this was coming for them, and um, it was it was just interesting sharing that story and putting it into into words and a song and. Having a whole, you know, layers of people who'd never really known that story, learning the story and having to talk about it and explain what what the story was about. So, yeah, I I I, I you know, I do I do this sort of show around Palestine. I also, do my workers' stuff, the union songs, and uh, the last couple of years I've done a few shows, you know, supporting soldier, um, refugee activists and refugees, and um, I don't know, it's a and it, it, it's, it it's, makes sense of it for me, I guess. <laughs> you know, when, when you're not going to sell millions and you're not going to, you know, um, have the biggest crowds, but um, it, it gives it a purpose and a focus and a, and a reason that, that I find really inspiring for myself. And just being able to take that story about, you know, walking around with people who are surrounded by this enormous concrete wall around um their towns and their villages and dividing them up between their families and just sort of chucking that into a reference that um someone this far away is putting into a song that feels you know it feels like work that should be done so
4: yeah i mean we definitely appreciate the work you do um the 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 songs you write uh, and the topics which you write and sing about um the the existence of these things uh are always um i'm not really sure what to say there um they're very good <laughs> <laughs> it's It's very good to have music about this kind of stuff, especially um stuff that is Both so close to home, yet also so far away, and you sort of build these bridges between here and Palestine, and um, or or just even other places uh, and in the continent. Um, uh, It's um, and and I sort of uh, I sort of see similarities to the kind of stuff you do with, uh, for example, the artist Sam Woolman. Who writes those? Um, who, who makes those little comics for the union movement? Um, they they also like tell these stories through their own form of art, and there are all these different forms of art which we can use to share these kinds of stories. Um,
5: yeah, art and you know that also, you know that sort of artistry and music and songs have always been a really significant part of um, struggle and we tend to forget that sometimes and we tend to really focus on uh, you know the nitty-gritty of the struggle the meetings and the rallies and the uh, but sitting behind that is you know often often to keep yourself going you you need that song you need that you know those words that sort of energy that coming together and singing together and um those moments together to to know that you just got to keep You got to keep doing it and you got to keep fighting and you got to keep hoping and um and i think music is that legacy and it that holds us it holds that path for us if you go back you know through the histories of lots of struggles
3: right on well thank you uh, someone's liked it so
5: much Oh, they, April they've Atonement.
3: Su- they've subscribed during April Atonement. We've had <laughs> a All new All you people subscriber.
5: out there in 4ZZZ land support workers' power.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so... It's, uh, w- once more, the, the, the event that we're talking about is... um we have, uh, the, It's next Saturday, um, so in commemoration of May Day, um, Palestine Songs and Stories 2023, uh, a fundraiser by Phil Monsoor, Saturday, 6th of May, 7pm, at 41 Peel Street. Um, that's South Brisbane, isn't it? Yep. um. Uh, cheap drinks and a meal um, so you can get your tickets at uh, uh, you, you can go to a film on on social media and there'll be links uh, to the tickets uh, um, get get one and and get out there all right we've um, got, I've left enough, enough time for you to do another one if you can if you can yeah, is there anything else you want to talk oh. about
5: before I was thinking we'll we'll play a track if that's okay that's wonderful. All mm. right, yeah. What track number? Uh, number
4: three. Just, uh... <laughs> excuse us <laughs> while we figure out how to use the CD player. Um... Uh, is there
5: Yeah, so, I uh, just... I mean, um, it is it is May Day uh, next week. Actually, May Day's falling on the 1st of May, or the holiday's falling on the 1st, which is... Um, so we're doing this the weekend after. Um, but on the... Um, the fifteenth of May marks the the Nakba or the catastrophe that I was talking about, mm. where we commemorate the loss of Palestine and the ongoing colonisation that's occurring. And um, for the probably for the first time in Australia, there'll be rallies all across the country simultaneously on Saturday the thirteenth. Oh yeah. So, I see um, uh, yeah.
4: Who'd be holding those so people can find more information?
5: Um, so if you're interested in that, if you go and, and s- search out "Justice for Palestine" Miange um, in Brisbane, and you can get details on that actual event. So that's an important one too. And um, this year there'll be a lot of sort of Palestinians speaking. Uh, we've actually got a couple of people here who can trace their um, who were in Palestine before 1948 and one of those will be speaking at the rally about his experiences and um, the generations that follow. Uh,
4: There there can be a lot of solidarity found between the similar situations uh, in both places. Like we, Australia is as much of a project of colonialism as Palestine is, or or Israel is uh, more accurately, Um, and though we are obviously a lot further along in the process um so we we can make a lot of connections between our history and the what is currently happening in palestine um
5: and i think i think the power of our movements is the way we link those things together we had an event probably just a month ago it was black palestine solidarity we've been having these um there's been a few of these across the country now
4: oh that's really cool
5: and um you know, some uh, First Nations activists spoke and we had um, a, a Palestinian author who was here for the Adelaide Writers' Festival also speaking um, and making those connections and linking those and, you know, it's 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 quite stark in lots of ways. You look at the treatment of, you know, Palestinian children um, in the Israeli prison system and you can see, you know, very strong echoes of what occurs here in the treatment of... Um, Indigenous kids in this country, and um, you know the, the nature of colonization and the nature of language, and and how those experiences. And I think, as I said, linking those two struggles, or linking 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 those struggles, or our various struggles together, um, does give us power and gives us strength. So.
4: Mm, And that's one of the things that music does really well is that um, Being able to find a common ground between people of vastly different cultures and experiences um, Finding those similarities between us. I
1: I think um, as a First Nations person a a lot of us uh, out there in the community would probably connect with your struggle In solidarity as well um, particularly with what we were talking about earlier about the frontier wars Um, you mentioned that um, there's a lot of indigenous kids that go through issues I mean I myself I used to speak two languages and due to white washing of colonialism I don't really know my language anymore I think a lot of people would definitely connect with what you're talking about
4: all right, it right. seems like we're ready to go. Yeah, okay. i got it lined
1: up. I'm hoping, here we go. Here's fingers crossed.
3: Thank you so much for coming Thank in, you. Phil. Thank you. Thank
5: you for supporting these. Um, and, you know, we we're talking about links, and I think, you know, union solidarity and workers' power is um, one of our most powerful links that we can we can build with all our struggles. So um, support Union Aid Abroad, support workers' power. Come along on the 6th of May. Thank you very much, Phil Monsoor.
2: Got it.
1: أرض المحبوبة أرضي أتحدى.